I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. Today, my conversation with Kevin Drew, the co-founder of the legendary Canadian band Broken Social Scene. This was a band that when I was growing up in Newfoundland and Labrador, I was sort of outside looking in at national media. And you just felt like something was happening in Toronto, something really exciting. In the early 2000s, Broken Social Scene helped create this excitement around Canadian music, around Canadian indie rock that was going all around the world. I mean, could you blame us? The band was so cool. They had like 35 members at a time. And if you like Feist, she was in Broken Social Scene. Metric, also in Broken Social Scene. Stars, Apostle of Hustle, Do Make Say Think, all in Broken Social Scene. They wore sunglasses. They didn't seem to smile in any of their photos. And they wore winter hats all year round. Incredibly cool. Their album, You Forgot It in People, took home Alternative Album of the Year at the Junos in 2003. Pitchfork named it one of the top albums of the 2000s. And at least once a month, I feel like someone comes up to me and, and we talk about why they started a band in the first place. And if they're from kind of southern Ontario, chances are it's because of broken social scene. So Kevin Drew has just released a new solo record. And if you're used to feedback and gang vocals and late night party anthems, his record is something different. It's called Aging. Kevin's in his late 40s now, and he's experiencing loss in his family and the challenges of just getting older. So a few weeks ago, Kevin and I sat down at the Hot Docs Podcast Festival in Toronto. We talked about his story and about the new album. Like, how did Broken Social Scene come about in the first place? And why were there so many people in the band? And how do you keep a band together that has like 20 members? What is it like to be told that your records aren't just good, but they're influential? And what happens when the party around you starts to die down, you look in the mirror one night, and those days seem a little far away? I really enjoyed this conversation with Kevin. I've got to know him um, over, the, over the years in Toronto, and I was really happy he opened up the way he did. I was really grateful for it, too. Here is my conversation from downtown Toronto with Kevin Drew. Can you tell me a little bit about how Broken Social Scene came together? I believe Brendan Canning, Canning Brendan Canning, sought me out and... I'm going to just do the quick Coles Notes version since that seems to be how we're handling the world right now. This is what happened. Brendan came in and said, I want to make some music with you. I was completely enamored by him because I listened to his records when I was, you know, in the 90s. I listened to Head Mm -hmm. and uh, knew that he was in By Divine Right and had played with Lana. I was really taken by him because he was such a lovely guy. Fell in love with him. We made a broken social scenes, feel good loss in the basement of, uh, at the time, my wife's house, my ex-wife now, a wonderful, lovely lady, and she put up with us working from the hours of 11 at night to 6 in the morning. We made this this record on 8-track, uh, quarter-inch Tascam 8-track, DA88, and we sort of were trying to sync them up, and uh, we, we got really lo-fi, and we decided that we wanted to play this with our friends, and when we got together, he brought his circle of friends. I brought my circle of friends. We ended up not playing a single song from the record that we made. And we started writing songs together. 
And then it just became a rotating door and who was flying into the city and who was out and who was this. And we just started going to clubs and we started challenging ourselves by booking gigs. And every time we went to play a show, we would have new material. So we would just constantly... Every time new music. No, We wanted no. to have new music every time. So Why? Just to see if we could do it. How old were you? Yeah. Uh, I think this is between sort of like 24 and 23 to 26. I, when we went in to make You Forgotten People, we compiled a big list and we went through the list and then we met with David Newfeld and started presenting songs and that's how that record came to be. But it was really just, just these two guys bringing in their, their crew of friends and that's how that happened. And at the time, you have to understand, everyone wanted to be really good at music, not at the scene or anything like that, but they want, everybody wanted to create something wonderful and they all had their own careers going at the time, but you were challenged by not only the people who were in the room, but the people who were in your life because music was so incredible and alive that you wanted to add to it. So everyone had an urgency when we were working together. Um, and I don't know if it's because of older age or whatever, but that urgency for me definitely is a memory. But I also think there's something beautiful in, in not having identity wrapped up in your art at times. There is something free. But back then, there was a load of identity around in the room. What does that mean about just being the best musician that just, you can? Well, just being everyone young, trying, yeah. being cool. Just trying, to, just trying to make melodies that matter. Why, why were there so many people in the group? I just think because we knew a lot of people. Yeah, but, but people who know a lot of people. Listen, yeah. it became a bit of a meme. Like, it became a bit of a, a joke that there was like, I remember I saw a tweet one time that was like, everybody check your mailboxes to see if you're in Broken Social Scene or not. They're about to go on tour. <laughs> Make sure you don't have to go too. Yeah. But like, a lot of people know a lot of people, and there were... But, but out of those lot of people, three or four people would start a band, or five or six people, mm. five, five or six people would start a band. We can admit to say that having nine, ten, how many, what was the max number of people that were on stage with that band at one time? Nineteen. Nineteen? Having that many people be part of a, a, a group, a music group, and be on stage at one time mm -hmm. is not. Um, I mean, I talked about this. Smart. With, I, <laughs> Financially fiscal. Economically feasible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a conversation about that, about your band with Talking Heads the other day while we were waiting to go on. And we were, they were, we were talking about the challenges of touring. And we talked about all when they were bringing like Bernie Worrell and all those. You know, wow. like when Talking Heads were touring stopped making sense, they had a lot of people in the band. Wow. And Jerry Harrison said to me, he was like, yeah, I think about those broken social scene guys, man. You know, that's a lot of bags to get on, a, on an airplane. <laughs> So shout out from Talking Heads. I love that. And we're done. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> like, we're done as a career. You yeah. can end now. I mean, that's it. But what was behind... It can't just be we knew a lot of people. I liked people. 
so I always wanted to have people coming into the band. I, I never thought that the door should close. Um, and Charlie was at first annoyed by that with the second Casey Accidental record we made. And when I say annoyed, he just kind of thought, well, I can do this all myself. And it's yeah. like, yeah, I know you can, but let's try this taste of, of this person. Let's try the taste of that person. And Brandon was just so like, hey, whatever, let's, let's, let's hang out with some people. And um, I think the musicianship becomes a little bit addictive when you realize, well, you can't get that unless it's with them. And you can't get that unless it's with them. There, I, it was never meant to be a career. It was never meant to last this long. It was never meant to have an impact. It was just meant to be in that moment to see if we could uh, impress ourselves and the wonderment of the talent that you have in a room where everyone brings something individually, it's pretty wild when that happens, and it was happening. So we couldn't argue with it. And then when someone would come over and be like, hey, can I play? I'm like, uh, sure, go ahead, see what you got. And it, suddenly they're playing a shaker in a way that no one else in the band can play it. And they're getting songwriting. When <laughs> they are, it's like, they're, they're well, getting they published. Shaker, we got to get them some publishing. <laughs> and I tell other band members, they're like, what? <laughs> but I think the reason we stayed together was just our weird way of figuring out publishing and trying to pay people and playing live and thank God for Feist and, and Metric and sort of stars having other careers because they could come in and, and help us and play with us and we all sort of put each other on a platform that then everyone went off and did their thing but it was something that it, it worked when everyone told us it wouldn't and we also had just a wonderful support system around us with friends that worked in labels and PR people and people in the press it just that's how the social scene started I mean, it worked is, is an understatement. I mean, it really, and this is a weird thing to talk about whenever I talk to Canadians, it became a very influential and very big thing. I mean, you know, I remember when I was going to, to university, the shorthand for liking indie rock was I like broken social scene. Mm. Like it felt like Canadian indie rock was really having a moment thanks to metric and thanks to stars and thanks to, thanks to social scene. Was and again, we have to accept gratitude and we have to accept accept self deprecation. But was there a moment that you knew that oh my god, this this thing is turning into something far bigger? I think it was the Lola Palooza. My dad's in the audience, so half the time I'm in this interview going, he should really be doing this. He's the social scene financial. We couldn't manager. afford him. Yeah, yeah we got <laughs> for almost twenty years now. He's been poor guy. He's been running the show. <laughs> Um, but I would say we, we played this, sh this, I think it was Pops, was it 2006? Yeah. Yeah, 2006. <laughs> we were in Chicago. Um, 
And uh, you like that. I really love just how quickly he had the yeah, answer. He, he knew it. He's like, <laughs> it was like, he he's didn't go, what year was that? 2006? Uh, well, hold on now. Hold on now. He went, yes, 2006. He, he finally knows. started making some money. Yeah, yeah. well, I think it 2006, just, that was long after... Well, it wasn't when we started making some money because that's why he was on board because I used, you know, the guy that didn't do his homework, I was in charge. So I was getting out the graph sheets and the ruler and people would be like, do you know this thing called Excel on the computer? I'm like, who has a computer? You know? <laughs> I didn't have one. I'm like, computer, come on. <laughs> so I was sort of getting out the calculator and working out all the percentages and, and um, doing it with Jeffrey Remedios mm-hmm. who, who came on board quite early uh, Due to, to Brendan introducing Jeffrey and I, and um, so we were sort of doing that. And then I, when my father, who's in the audience, retired, I looked at him and said, "Hey, can you uh, maybe help me for the next 19 years?" <laughs> and he reluctantly said yes. At first, I know we had some great times together, but it's a very, it, it's only gotten way harder. I'll just say that it's gotten incredibly difficult to tour. It's got incredibly difficult to, to make this machine run, but there was a time, 2006, we played a festival closing stage to the last band, which was the Chili Peppers, who were across from us, and I never experienced, I, I know why people change their lives on the basis of playing in front of you know, 60, 70,000 people or whatever it is, because at that moment, knowing that we probably wouldn't do that again, it, it seemed like that was it. We could have just stopped there because that was the movie moment of stopping. Thank you. Thank you, Chicago. We got 45 minutes to play our guts out for you tonight, so here we go. Thank you so much for doing this for us. Meanwhile, we had a tour that was starting in Wales you know, in two weeks where we were going to play for 300 people. But you somebody. felt like the music that we made... I felt like that was it. And we had made an impact. I, I, I so. see people yeah. out there, this is not a local Toronto thing anymore. No. We, we have made an impact on yeah. that and, 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 and sort of made Canadian music a, a bigger thing. I didn't look at it like that because I thought there was a lot of bands, you know, there was a lot of scenes happening. You know, there were band, like hidden cameras I can Royal yeah. City, all these things that were going on. Um, mm-hmm. I could keep listing off. And Sloan, of mm-hmm. course. Like Sloan were, and still are, I think, one of just the great bands of Canada. But, but I'm glad you had that moment. I'm glad you yeah, had it was that cool. moment to kind of go, oh, we, we really made a difference. Because I think you're seeing that now. And I'm going to switch to talking about the new record in a second. But the, the, I think you're seeing that now. You know, we, we were talking over there. And who's the TMU journalist that's here? What's your name again? Anna from TMU came over while you were signing a, a record and she looked at you and she said, local opener. I thought that was the name of her band. No. <laughs> it's like, Lo- hi, I'm local opener. Lo- like, local opener refers to um, Boy Genius, who, you know, the biggest band in the entire world right now. <laughs> and they, these, these younger musicians who are now, you know, they're in their mid-20s, invited you to, mm-hmm. you tell the story, invited you in social scene to perform yeah. because to them growing up in the States, growing up as these weirdos in the States, you, you obviously meant a lot to them. I remember it's impossible to pass your test But I'm trying to forget about it Feeling like I'm breaking a sweat about it, wishing 
loved that, and that was wonderful. Is that what happened? They called you and said... Yeah, we just heard they wanted us to play, and you say yes. I think it's so exciting what's going on musically with uh, so many bands out there that uh, when you get you know, some of the youngs coming up saying, hey, we're... I didn't know what to call it. I, I kind of panicked. <laughs> no, it's the youngs. <laughs> the youngs. I apologize. Uh, but, um, I mean, that helps us. That it helps us in many ways. It gets us in front of people who don't know of us. And it also, you're, you, you, you've worked really hard and, and not to say that we've done it, but we did it. We would grab bands that were way older than us who we just adored. And so will you play with us? Will you play with, and, uh, I, I love that. And I think that is a testament to the music and a testament to the honesty within the music that, uh, people can still find it. And they're still like, we're playing shows now where we have such a younger audience out there. And, I know that Boy Genius threw us on a a, a playlist recently. And a t-shirt. Didn't Phoebe Bridgers wear a t-shirt? She wore a t-shirt that we then had to turn around because it was uh, uh, someone made this t-shirt. So the next thing you know, there's all these... What did the t-shirt these, say? Uh, drop that car, park that phone, sleep on the floor, dream about me. Emily Haynes. Emily Haynes lyrics. Um, and that song, Anthems for a 17-Year-Old Girl, really, really sort of came out in this last year yeah. and really made a splash in terms of all those memes and people are writing about it. Uh, so it, it, it was a really nice moment, actually. It, it worked out quite well. I hope in addition to the, it helps us get in front of people. I love how everyday and practical you are, but it helps us get in front of an audience. It helps the machine yeah. going. But I hope you had a moment of going like, it's nice to be honored by these oh, people. Oh, of course. I, look, it's nice to be here right now. It's nice to still be doing it. It's nice to be alive, and I know that sounds silly, but it's true. It is. I don't. I got people who aren't, and um, I sort of keep that in mind when I do this stuff now. And I also, I don't really have rules in my mind of how things are supposed to go. And the conversation in the last couple of years with music, and, and specifically in my area and my age, is oh, it's ending, it's dying, it's over, it's oh, we can't do this, we can't do that, and I. I don't subscribe to that. I, I really try to just say, okay, it's not what it was. Maybe it'll be something else. Either way, we're here, we're alive, and we're doing it. And I try to stay in, in the grateful world. And when I am complaining, I'm usually doing it quietly. Privately. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Coming up, more of my conversation with the co-founder of the band Broken Social Scene, Kevin Drew. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. And I just thought to myself, well, how am I going to get behind this album? And then when my mother died, and I had a song coming out a couple of weeks later, I thought, oh, now I'm going to do this for her. And then now 
I think I'm going to do everything for her from this point forward. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with Kevin Drew, recorded in front of a live audience during the Hot Docs Podcast Festival in Toronto. Kevin is the co-founder of the legendary Canadian indie rock collective Broken Social Scene, who made a tremendous impact on indie rock as a whole and on Canadian music starting in the early 2000s. The part of our conversation you just heard was kind of talking about those early days. But for this part of our conversation, we focus on now. We focus on Kevin's new solo album, which is called Aging. And it's a record about getting older, about grief, about loss. You might be surprised to know that when he went in to write this album years ago, he thought he was making a children's record. Obviously, things changed. That's where our conversation picks up. What kind of children's album were you trying to make? Like, hey, kids, hope you like Paw Patrol. You're going to die one day. Like, what? 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 What happened here? <laughs> that was very good. That was Can I join Broken Social? Yes, yeah. of course. Uh, oh, um, well, I love children's music, and, <laughs> and they ch- got to know about they got to know about life. Um, but it is interesting how it. I, I. It was also it was the pandemic, so I was. You're constantly trying to find things to do when you're not working as an artist. And routine is something that you just don't have. And it was a point where I thought, okay, I'm always trying to find things for the band to do as well. Uh, There was talks throughout the last few years of my life with some wonderful people about making a children's record. And within that, I was starting to write little, I would always write these little children's songs in the, the... the field trip uh, stage, which was a festival that we put on for years, always had a children's stage, and I loved going, going over there and ad-libbing some children jams. And I thought, <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. And I thought, the kids don't know what you're doing. You're just like, I'm going to improv. And as long as it's got a cool beat and you're singing about peanut butter, everything's cool. And um, so within that, I thought I would do this. Now, when I went in, I did throw down some songs about ice cream on the moon and hanging on a swing set and how everyone's allowed to be on the swing set. It was one of those songs for the kids where it's like, hey, everybody can be on the swing set. And then it came to this point where we did a song called Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. And um, I turned to Niles and I sort of sang it and I went, all right, well, this obviously has to be sung by a woman. This has to be sung by a mom. It has to be sung by a grandmother, someone who's telling the kids, like, there is darkness, but the light always comes back on. And it got me thinking about my mom. And at the time, my mom was not well. And uh, I just started thinking from that point of view of my mom singing me, uh, you know, songs when I was a kid. So What did she sing you? It was more my grandmother who did. Mm -hmm. She used to sing to me uh, uh, one of my favorite songs, which was Little Man, You're Crying. I don't know that one. Little Man, You're Crying. I think it came from the war. Little Man, You're Crying, You've Had a Busy Day. No, Little Man, You're Crying, I Know Why You're Blue. Someone took your kitty car away. Better go to sleep now. Little Man, You've Had a Busy Day. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah really beautiful. Really, Thank really you. beautiful. So so you, you start realizing that, okay, there's there's a more serious something happening in this music. And you can start thinking about your mom who's not well. Yeah, I just 
thought, hey, Niles, because he then said, oh, you want to sound like a woman? I'll put you through auto-tune. And then suddenly I'm in auto-tune, and I went, okay, well, why don't we just take a next batch of songs? And the song that I, I played for you this evening, Party Oven, I, I had written earlier uh, when I had a conversation with a friend and we had lost someone dearly, and he asked me if we'd partied too much with them. Did we party too much? And it really resonated with me to the aspect of the loss of wondering if you did it wrong. We parted into your grave. Was that okay? Was that okay? And it wasn't the first time that I lost somebody in my life where I looked back and said, in that period of knowing that they were going to leave, whether it's whatever. Uh, sickness or disease that they have that gives them this longevity of you having to hang out without doing the living funeral uh, just like did I do it wrong did, was that too did I do this wrong and it sort of intrigued me and that sort of came out and then from there we kind of opened the floodgates and I went in and then I was just thinking about my mom and and you know, my dad can tell you because he was calling me when I was in the studio. We did it very quickly, and I said, "Hey, I'm, I'm making this album. I don't think I'm going to put it out, but I'm sort of singing some songs for who's not here and what's happened and getting older. And also, I'm singing them for mom, and I was singing them for her because I've always thought songs are premonitions. Um, I try to warn songwriters of that in the aspect that." If you sing about heartbreak your whole life, you're never going to have a partner or be in love. And really? You, you feel that way? I do. I see it happen all the time. I don't know why we have yet to sing about big jet airplanes and all those things and having success, but I think when you take these songs into your life and then you make them a part as your children and you take them out and you go all over the world and you constantly call this in with the repetition of what you're singing about, you have to be very, very careful and uh i remember pinning down a song thinking okay i'm gonna sing a song about how I th you know i know my mom's gonna get better i think you're gonna get better i think you'll be back on your feet soon and when the collection of songs were done i put them on the shelf and i didn't touch them for a couple of years and then we went and put it out, and she died a, a month before the record came out, a month before the first song came out. And I wasn't thinking anything except I didn't have the power to represent this record. I just felt still like this battle between man and inner child and all that shit that you have to read about in a self-help book. And I just thought to myself, well, how am I going to get behind this album? And then when my mother died, and I had a song coming out a couple of weeks later, I thought, oh, now I'm gonna do this for her. And then now I think I'm gonna do everything for her from this point forward. So that's just how this happened, so. What, what was her name? Maggie. <clears throat> Maggie Drew? Maggie Drew. Real detective name, by the way. <laughs> Maggie Drew. Maggie how, Drew. How old was she when she passed, if you don't mind me uh, 78. 78 pops? Yeah. 78. When you... Um, 79 uh, this week. Yeah. When 79. You, 
when you listen, um, when you listened, it's weird to talk to you about this in front of so many people, but um, yeah, strange. But um, when you listened back to the record after she had passed to to to, to get ready to put it out, did yeah. you hear it differently? What did you feel when you were listening to it? <sighs> what did I feel? I felt. Uh, I just. I felt the loss of my mom, and I also felt this power now that I had. I felt like I had this power to go out there and do it even harder. And I don't know. I think, I don't know about the people here in the room. I know that you lost your dad when you were 20. 24. 24, okay. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. My mom and I were, we were, we were close and we had a love for each other and I was very fortunate enough to spend time with her and play music for her and never played her the record. It didn't matter. We were, we were doing other, th we were listening to other things and she was smiling and um, I don't know, there's this power that I feel. Help me understand that better, the power that you feel. That there's someone out there that I got a bloodline to that's it's my mom. I mean, my girlfriend Rachel said this is your your you know you grew next to her heartbeat, and then I started talking when I was on stage. Like, my mom was my first drum machine, right? My first drum machine was my mother's heartbeat, and now I just sort of feel like I've got this womb around me again. That's this protective spirit with her being gone. That's the only thing I can really say about it. Uh, I'm a few months into it. My dad's here today. I'm trying to. We have our memorial coming up next week, and we just want to honor her, like I think you want to honor people who've who've left you in, in in your life. And I didn't understand grief from the point of view of this perspective, but yeah. you know, I've it's lost a people. it's a knife in your chest. It's a strange one, yeah, because it's a hole, yeah. And then everybody talked to you goes, oh, it doesn't go away. You live with that every day. Yeah. And I thought, okay, well, then I'm going to live with that by talking about her, by honoring her, by making art, by, you know, the band and social scene. We went out on the road recently and they've lost, you know, there's a lot of parents that have been lost in that band. And we just started really putting them on the pedestal and playing the shows. And the shows were amazing. And the shows were amazing because they have to be. You can't dilly-dally anymore at this point in life. You can't second-guess. You have to be intuitive. You have to know who you are. You have to know if you're not going to choose a side, then you have to know that that's your side. And you have to stand strong in yourself because there's so much going on that wants to hold you back and limit the thinking of how you feel and learn and do. And I don't know. There's something powerful that my mother's out there now. I feel as if I'm, uh, I'm protected. I, I suppose death is just, it's, it's an ongoing, everyday thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm grateful to understand that now a yeah. little bit more because I had a lot of friends who've lost their folks and you can only understand it to a certain point. But yeah, go ahead. It's, you, you, I think what I wanted to say was you made a really beautiful record Thank about, you. about this really strange time in our lives. And it was nice to hear it uh, through, through your eyes. Oh, I love that. Can we get a round of applause for Kevin Drew, everybody? Thank you. Kevin Drew is the co-founder of Broken Social Scene and the music label Arts and Crafts. He's got a new solo album called Aging, which is out now. 
Thanks so much to Kevin Drew for sitting down. I mean, I, luckily, you know, the, someone told me one time the Canadian music industry is like nine people, and it feels like that sometimes, you know? Then one of the nice things about having this job is being able to go out and meet people as part of the Canadian music industry and hang out and, and chat. And one of those people I've been lucky enough to know is is Kevin Drew. That was one of those interviews where I was asking him the questions I've always wanted to ask, like since I was 18. For instance, why are there so many people in your band? And how do you have so many people in your band? And what satisfying answers he gave. The idea of, of, of the importance of, of community and having a bunch of people who are better than you around you making music. I loved it. And then to hear him talk a little bit about aging and the death of a parent. And uh, I really am grateful to Kevin for that conversation. We recorded that at the Hot Docs Podcast Festival. Thanks a lot to Hot Docs for having us too. Um, the other interview we have up today is uh, Talia Schlanger, who was sitting in for me because I was I was a little ill. Um, she sat down with the Broadway star turned TV star turned pop star Renee Rapp. So you can Renee Rapp on the door and download that podcast. We'll see you soon later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.